This podcast has a PowerPoint presentation that goes along with the show. So if you would like to see the PowerPoint presentation, then head over to our YouTube channel at American Civil War and UK History. Although American Civil War and UK history is a hobby, there are small costs associated with running a podcast. So if you enjoy our content, please support the show. You can do this by pressing the support the show button or pressing on the link to buy me a coffee in the show notes. Thank you for your continued support. Daz, American Civil War and UK history. Cheers. Hello everyone, I'm Daz and welcome to American Civil War and UK History. This presentation is available as a video on our YouTube channel and as a podcast from wherever you get your podcast from. And remember we are on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and TikTok. This is part two of the battles of Forts Henry and Donaldson. And I was joined by historian Greg Biggs to discuss the battle of Fort Donaldson. Now they turn their attention to Fort Donaldson, so... Let's get this map back up again. And so tell us about its location, uh, its design, and how it was built and everything like that. All right. Fort Donaldson, a less powerful garrison on the nice high ground. You've got a pretty powerful water battery, eight thirty-two pound smoothbore guns, a 10-inch Columbiad smoothbore gun. That's in the uh, lower battery, lower because it's downstream. And in the upper battery, which is actually topographically lower than the lower battery, but it's upstream, a six and a half inch rifled Columbiad, which is basically the same tube as a 10 inch smoothbore, but it's bored differently, and two 32 pound naval carronades. Now, a lot of people don't know this. There's been a recent book came out about a year and a half ago on the Confederate artillery at Fort Henry and Donaldson. And it's a very good addition to our knowledge because a lot of people don't know where these guns came from. Well, it's obvious that the that these the um, um, the, the Columbiads, the one that's at Fort uh, Henry, the two that are at Fort Donaldson, are cast at the Tredegar Ironworks in Richmond, and then shipped by rail into Tennessee, uh, all the way to Nashville, and then put on steamboats and then uh, taken up the rivers uh, to Fort Donaldson, uh, and then. Uh, uh, by rail over to Fort uh, Fort uh, the Tennessee River and then up to Fort Henry uh, in that in that manner and that's how the guns are going to a, a lot of guns will get by the way to Columbus Kentucky and Fort Pillow and and places like that. What a lot of people don't know is these thirty two pounders, the twenty four pounders, the forty two pounders, and those two ab- absolutely useless thirty two pound naval carronades. I'll talk about those in a second. Become Curtis or, or gifts courtesy of the United States Navy. In April 1861, after Virginia secedes from the Union, Virginia state troops go knocking on the door of the massive Navy yard at Gosport, Norfolk, Virginia. Uh, this ties into the, the building of the CSS Virginia from the hulk of the USS Merrimack, uh, which is you know left behind. A couple other ships get away. Some get burned. Uh, the Merrimack does not. Uh, the Confederates, as we know, convert to the CSS Virginia. They capture 1,200 pieces of heavy naval artillery. I have a complete list of those guns, courtesy of a gentleman that was tasked by the Virginia legislature to go and inventory everything captured at Gosport Navy Yard. I'm a flag historian. I got it initially for how many thousands of yards of wool bunting that they captured, all of which came from England, by the way. But when you get into the Henry Donaldson campaign, you, gee, where do these guns come from? Thanks to the U.S. Navy. 
The other what if here for all of these forts, and it's not just the forts that are the brick and mortar forts that are built um, after the War of 1812, when a bunch of guys wearing red uniforms showed up and burned our nation's capital at the time. Uh, and, and that set about the second biggest defense expenditure in United States military history, the first being the six frigates, was building a chain of masonry forts from Maine to the Gulf Coast so uh, uh, bad people with bad intent couldn't capture a U.S. city. So they will build Fort Sumter and Fort Jackson and uh, Fort Massachusetts and, and all of this massive chain of uh, Fort Pulaski, this massive chain of, uh, of forts built out of masonry all up and down the United States coast and into the Gulf. Now, when the Confederates succeed, they start building a bunch of earthen forts out, the, out there on the outer banks that I talked about in October of 61, some of the inner uh, harbors, uh, fortifications around Jacksonville, Florida, Pensacola, Gulf Coast fortifications, Savannah fortifications, and then, most importantly for the Confederates in the Western Theater, the Inland Rivers. Where are the guns going to come from? All those masonry forts had guns. They, they were there. When the Confederates took over the ones they took over, Fort Pulaski, um, uh, Fort Sumter, uh, one of the forts, actually two of the forts in Pensacola, uh, the forts around New Orleans, which was a heavily fortified city um, type of thing. The guns were there. But when you're building earthen forts, where are these guns going to come from? You can't cast enough heavy artillery uh, at Tredegar and the Bologna foundries to fit them out. You can't cast enough heavy artillery in Atlanta to fit them out. Um, there were one or two other foundries that could cast heavy guns. Mostly uh, will be light artillery that gets cast. Um, so courtesy of these 1,200 pieces of heavy artillery, these forts happen. So your what if is what if, if uh, the Norfolk Navy Yard does not fall to the Virginia State troops and they capture 1,200 pieces of artillery. So when I talk about the 32-pound carronades on the tour, I, I hearken back to the great movie Master and Commander. Fantastic movie. Yeah. And uh, wooden ship warfare back in the War of 1812 and, and uh, our, our uh, French uh, uh, and Indian War, or actually your French and Indian War when we were part of you guys, and then our Revolutionary War where wooden ships will close with each other. And if the ship isn't too pounded into, into planks, they will try to capture it. Well, how do you capture it? The upper gun deck are these guns called carronades. And they're not very big, and you load them with scrap, nails, and stones, and you put your powder in there. And your mission on those things as you close with the enemy warship is you set them off as giant shotguns, and you kill and wound the enemy crew, and then you grapple with the other ship, and then your Marines and sailors go over, and you hopefully capture the enemy ship. So being a naval institution at Norfolk, they're basically grabbing guns and shipping them west, and these two 32-pound carronades were no exception. Uh, to my knowledge, they were never fired in anger. They wouldn't have done anything unless the United States Marine Corps is doing a naval landing literally at the foot of the upper battery. Those guns are utterly useless because they range out only a couple hundred yards. So uh, th that's basically what happens and how the guns get there. So let's go back to February 12th. Halleck has been bugging Grant ever since. Hey, I needed to take Clarksville. Grant says, well, this thing called Donaldson is in the way. The waters are rising. Lou Wallace's uh, troops show up. Some more reinforcements show up. And then, as you can see on the road network, the telegraph road, which was built by the Confederates, and they ran the telegraph line from um, Henry to Donaldson so they could talk with each other. 
uh, they will start to send forth uh, a expedition under Charles Ferguson Smith, his lead brigade, WHL Wallace, who will be killed in action at Shiloh. And then on the Ridge Road, which also is known as the Patoma Furnace Road because it went to the Patoma Furnace, is uh, John McClernand's division with uh, Richard Oglesby's brigade in the lead, future governor of Illinois. Uh, and it's a very hilly route called the Ridge Road because they literally built it on the top of a ridge. You can hike this route pretty much today. It's part of the Land Between the Lakes era or area where there's a lot of hiking trails and it's marked as a hiking trail. So you can get an idea of what the terrain is. It runs north of the modern road when it gets down to the flatter area. And on the 12th of February, um, uh, Grant's probing will start to head towards um, Fort Donaldson. He will, uh, uh, Lou Wallace will command a brigade left behind to kind of hold the Fort Henry area. There's Union troops across the river at Fort Hyman to protect it because, again, Halleck's looking at this as a supply base and they're landing supplies, but with the rising water, they got to keep shoving them up the riverbank. And, and, uh, um, you know, so Wallace realizes Grant doesn't have enough guys. He's only got two divisions. And I'm going to pull my guys out a couple miles because I know I'm going to get the the, uh, the call to to head forward. And sure enough, that's exactly what's going to happen. In the meantime, uh, the reigning of uh, Confederate Brigadier Dear Chief Brigadier Generals will happen uh, at Fort Donaldson. The senior ranking guy is going to be John Floyd from Virginia, uh, who actually is a combat veteran. He, he fights in the in the battles along the Kanawha River. Places like at Scary Creek and Gully Bridge, and and a couple other uh, uh, other important places there in in um, uh, Carnifax Ferry is another one. Uh, my Confederate ancestor in the Twenty Second Virginia uh, serves under him there, um, and then so he will show up, and by date of commission will actually outrank Gideon Pillow, who's the number two guy in terms of commission, another Confederate Brigadier General, who both of whom outrank Simon Bolivar Buckner, who's West Point and the number three guy in terms of date of commission. Um, so the garrison at Fort Donaldson on the 12th of February actually outnumbers Grant by about 3,000 troops. And uh, Pillow is the on-site commander. Uh, and he, even though if you read his communications, he's an avid Southern patriot. He's a gung-ho alpha personality. But in terms of going out and trying to interdict Grant coming across, he's got some cavalry out there on the roads. Uh, one group of cavalry is out there on the Telegraph Road, and when Forrest shows up uh, on, on the 10th and the 11th, he rides out on the 11th and doesn't see anybody, and then rides out on the 12th on his scout and collides with Oglesby Brigade, Oglesby's Brigade, and then a gunfight breaks out, where Forrest uses a pretty good combination of uh, maneuver and, and uh, charges and foot foot mounted fighting and mounted fighting and, and forces Oglesby to, to deploy from column into line and delays him for a couple hours. And then he rides back and reports to Pillow, uh, General or Colonel, he's a Lieutenant Colonel at the time, Colonel Forrest, uh, where are the Federals? And it's basically General Pillow, they're here. They're a couple miles outside the fort and they're coming on. And uh, Wallace will shove back the Confederate cavalry on the Telegraph Road uh, with the same basic report. Okay, they're coming across. Does Pillow, and I take staff rides out there, you can drive a lot of the Telegraph Road today, and I always get asked by professional soldiers, well, gee, this is amazing defensive terrain, it's wooded, there's ravines all over the place, 
So how many brigades does Pillow send out here, and how many brigades does he put out on the Ridge Road? And I said, well, if I'm in charge of this campaign, there's two brigades on each road, and I'm going to kick Grant's teeth in as he comes over. And if I get outflanked or outnumbered, I'll just do a fallback to a successive position because there's nothing but ridges between me and Fort Donaldson. I've got a lot of places that I can fall back to. Does Pillow do that? No. He totally surrenders the initiative to Grant. Keep this in mind when Grant is talking to Buckner after the surrender, and he says, if you had been in charge of this campaign, I would have fought this campaign completely different. But he knew Pillow from the Mexican-American War, and uh-huh. he knew Pillow wasn't going to be an aggressive guy out on the field. So he knew that Pillow was going to surrender initiative, and that allows Grant to almost walk right up to Fort Donaldson and get the, the spyglass out and go, okay, here's what we're facing with, uh-huh. and then he deploys his troops accordingly. The deployment of the troops is he will send Wallace's brigade initially to the north side of Fort Donaldson because he wants to block the uh, road uh, up to um, Kentucky from there uh, on Hickman Creek and and prevent an escape route. What's Grant doing? He's thinking, not only capture Fort Donaldson, I want the whole bloody garrison as well. So that uh, group of troops under there uh, uh, will be out that way. And then we'll see because of the incessant flooding of this campaign that Hickman Creek is significantly wider than it was the bridges underwater um, for the uh, uh, for the road that crosses there, uh, heading up to Eddyville, Kentucky. It's the Eddyville Road, and he will pull the bulk of his brigade back, but he'll leave a, a small uh, detachment of Union troops there just in case something happens and he can report that that uh, outlet is open. And then the other group is going to head to the south of Fort Donaldson and cut the Charlotte and the Forge roads which are the escape routes to uh, the town of Charlotte and Nashville, uh, respectively. So again, I want the the 13,000-man garrison at the time of the 12th that will rise to a 17,000-man garrison by the 14th and 15th because massive Confederate reinforcements are also on the way. Albert Sidney Johnson is the Confederate Department Commander, Department Number 2. He's up at Bowling Green. And when he realizes that Fort Henry has fallen, he starts to order the evacuation of both Columbus, Kentucky, and starts the evacuation of Bowling Green. And he will send an order to Pillow and Floyd, okay, what I want you to do is hold as long as you can at Donaldson so that I can get my army out of Bowling Green and cross the Cumberland River at Nashville. Nashville is on the west bank of the Cumberland River. And if the, if the Federals, excuse me, get there before I do uh, and capture uh, Nashville and cut the bridges across the river, I'm in trouble and I'm going to have to move up towards the foothills of the Cumberland Plateau to get out of this part and fall back south. So do not let your garrison be trapped at Fort Donaldson. Hold and then uh, get out of there with as many guys as you can. So when Pillow is on, excuse me, when Floyd is on his way from Clarksville uh, to to uh, Dover, he runs into Buckner at Cumberland City, which is off your map about 20, uh, 18, 20 miles to the south east. And Buckner's division has already been stolen, if you will, by Pillow, uh, and been sent from Clarksville up to Dover. Buckner was not happy about that, so he 
pulls the maps out and he complains to Pillow or excuse me to Floyd and says, I'm going to get my division back. And it's really stupid if our department commander is telling us to turn this into a hold until he gets across the river sort of defense. How about if we do this? We pull part of the garrison down to Cumberland City, which is not only on the river, but on the railroad, so a secure line of supply. Leave a small garrison to hold Dover. And then when Grant starts his way out, we can swing out through the, the road network and come up and ambush him on his flank, particularly coming down the Ridge Pictoma Furnace Road, which will be uh, McClernand's division. Fantastic plan. You're not surrendering maneuver. So uh, uh, Floyd goes, yeah, fantastic idea. Off they go on the steamboats up to Dover. And, and uh, uh, Buckner tells Pillow, okay, General Floyd says this. I'm pulling my division out. And General Pillow pulls rank and says, nope. I will go down to Cumberland City to talk to General Pillow, or excuse me, to General Floyd. Keep saying Pillow. Pillow wants to go talk to General Floyd. He gets down to Cumberland City. Floyd's gone back to Clarksville. So he turns back around and goes and tells uh, Buckner, you're not going anywhere until I can talk with uh, um, General Floyd. So now, as Grant's come over, that fixes the garrison into place. More and more uh, troops coming up the steamboats. Uh, reinforcing uh, the garrison. Again, the Confederates don't come out and smash Grant, which they could have done easily uh, a couple days earlier, and that locks things in, into place, and that falls right into Grant's lap as, I can't believe these guys are being this stupid. <laughs> okay, Greg, so you've set the scene for us uh, for the battle, obviously, like you said, um, so it's two parts, uh, but the first part's going to be the river attack, isn't it? So take us through that, please. Okay. So what happened at Fort Henry on February 6th? Gunboats win. So they will, will not only you know, uh, uh, subdue a lot of the heavy artillery over there, but capture the garrison, win the big victory. A couple gunboats get switched out because of damage. Um, crews get swapped over because uh, um, um, there's not enough crew to, to outfit Foote's boats. Uh, at the time, and and so they'll swap some crewmen over, um, and then they will head on up the Cumberland River. Again, thanks to the flooding, they can cross that boom and start to uh, uh, get some actual intel about two miles around or downstream, or excuse me, upstream from uh, Fort Donaldson. That'll happen on the 12th while Grant's coming over. So this 12th is a combined thing. Grant coming this way, USS Carondelet coming uh, up the Cumberland River to about a two-mile point, firing her big eight-inch guns to try to provoke the garrison at, at Dover or Fort Donaldson to respond to find out what's the gunpower there. What are we going up against? Do they have nothing but Columbiads? Do they have 32-pounders? We don't know. And Pillow says, you're not going to respond, so do not fire. So after a number of rounds, Carondelet sees what's going to happen, cuts its power, and just maneuvers back using the current back around the bend to where the Union supply head is going to be. Grant hears the booming on the river. He now knows Navy is on station. Good. Plan falling into place. On the 13th, Carondelet does the exact same thing. Pulls up a little bit closer. This time, Pillow will authorize the guns to respond. And the only two that can are the 10-inch smoothbore um, Columbiad and the 6.5-inch rifle Columbiad. 
in the uh, lower battery, both of which have a vicious recoil, 128-pound round, about 50 pounds of powder to, to reach out to over 5,000-plus yards, and they can outrange those naval guns. And, in fact, one of the rounds, uh, I believe, from the 10-inch will actually hit Carondelet. And how do they know? Because they hear this loud metallic clang echoing uh, up the river towards the battery, and a nice cheer raises up. So Grant knows that that uh, Navy's on the river. Now Foot knows, okay, they've got some uh, uh, Columbiads in their battery that can hit me at a pretty long range and, and pack a pretty good punch. Uh, but the, one of the last shots of um, the one of the eight-inch guns from the Carondelet will actually dismount gun number six of the 32-pounders <clears throat> and knock it off its carriage. And as that gets hit by a smooth ball, Captain Joseph Dixon, who was instrumental in building the battery at Fort Henry, gets hit by a piece of that carriage that hits him in the head and kills him on the spot. The Park Service has now put a nice little marker where Captain Dixon uh, uh, dies in, in action. And then excuse me, Carondelet cuts power and heads back downstream again. So the battery of, of eight pounders left to right off the river, the first four guns, the Confederates do not have enough trained heavy artillerymen. You have uh, uh, some guys from the Tennessee State Artillery from Mankiewicz's battery there that will do the training. They're the ones manning the heavy guns, the two Columbiads and, and the carronades. In fact, the commander of the upper battery is Reuben Ross, who is from Clarksville, tries to raise an infantry regiment, fails, goes down to Murray County, raises a battery of light artillery, shows up at Donaldson and says, we've already got too many light artillery pieces. We're going to convert you to heavy gunners and you take the upper battery. So he's in charge of training them. He's West Point, so he's got some uh, artillery experience. <clears throat> the uh, the uh, lower battery, however, they'll use the gunners of the heavy artillery and they'll take for the first four guns coming off the river, guns one through four, Company A of the 50th Tennessee for all men from Clarksville. So these guys are literally fighting in their backyard. The next four guns are Company A of the 30th Tennessee, who are from two counties over to the east of, of, of Stewart County and Dover. And they're all from Springfield-Robertson County. Uh, so what they do to train these, these infantrymen on 32-pound uh, guns, they fire almost the same way as a musket. Muzzle loading, rounds down the barrel with a powder charge. They don't, uh, muskets uh, and flintlocks don't have a vent prick, but you've got an ignition system, whether it's a flintlock and a pan or a percussion cap on, on a percussion rifle or, or percussion smoothbore. And and so basically what they said, well, loading is the same way. So they, they run them through the loading drill. They get that down pretty good. But they actually will teach them something that the majority of Civil War infantrymen are not taught, and that's range estimation. Now, the artillery is a technical service. If you're West Point and you were upper level of your class, you went to the engineers, then the next upper level of classmen went to the artillery, and then everybody else went, were stuck in the infantry of the cavalrymen because they didn't do geometry or algebra well enough to get into the senior the uh, technical services. So what they do is on the backs of these guns, there's a little device that goes on the breech, and they use that for estimating the range, the pivot, uh, and, and things of that nature. So they send an officer down the river with some paint, and at about 800 yards, he paints a tree. 1,000 yards, paints a tree. 1,200 yards, paints a tree, etc. 
They then will go back and they will zer practice zeroing in on these targets. And okay, that's an 800 yard tree, zero in, and they teach them how to do that, how much powder is necessary to make sure that ball gets to that point. And they will drill for several days and they do a really good job. Mm -hmm. uh, and the boom is a lot bigger. Uh, 32 pound shot going. I don't know if you've been to a Civil War read, even a two pound. Uh, blank round from a Napoleon uh, kicks you in the chest pretty good. Uh -huh. So you've got, you know, about a 15, 20 pound powder thing for a 32 pound ball. That's a big thunk. And and when the battle ensues, Clarksville's 37 river miles away. They hear this over in Clarksville with not a, with not a problem. So on the, um, the, the morning of the 14th, the Confederates know where Grant's supply depot is because you can stand at the water battery and look downstream about two and a half miles, and you see columns of smoke. It's a, it's an S-curve. So you have your two miles of straight river, then it curves to the right, and then another S-curve to the left, and behind a little ridge, and then that's where Grant's reinforcing point is going to be. And the Confederates figure it out because steamboats burn coal, and what does coal uh, do when it burns? Black smoke. So when you see black smoke moving above the tree line, that boat is moving. When you see the smoke just standing there and billowing up, they deduce that that must be where Grant's getting his reinforcements from. And they're absolutely right. Alec's going to be shoving troops down there, supplies, food, whatever's needed for Grant to prosecute successfully this campaign. Then in the early afternoon of the 14th, they see columns of smoke coming this way and then turning this way coming around the s curve and then one by one by one line abreast from left to right on the uh, west bank of the cumberland to the right bank the uss st louis which is what's flagship closest to the western bank and then you've got the louisville the pittsburgh and on the far right bank is the carondelet Coming line abreast, the Cumberland River today is maybe at Fort Donaldson, 25 feet wider than it was then. There's a marker buoy. Former park historian said he thinks that's where the Civil War bank was at the time. So we're only talking about 25 feet or so. Kind of like at Shiloh, Tennessee River is supposed to be the exact same width as it was during Shiloh. So you're, you're, these boats are not going to A, maneuver because you've got your armor on the bow, your big guns are on the bow. Two... These boats are 52 feet wide. So on a narrow river, it's bumper cars. Mm -hmm. So they're, they're sailing literally right next to each other with a handful of feet in between each boat. So there's no maneuvering. In fact, a couple of boats will actually tangle up a little bit before they, they disentangle. So here they come around the bend. They see the smoke coming. The gutters run to their positions. They see what's happening. Now, General Pillow is on site, and he sends a telegram up to uh, Sidney Johnson up at Bowling Green and says, the gunboats are advancing. We can't hold 30 minutes. Colonel Forrest is by the water battery, and he turns to Major David C. Kelly, the Methodist minister that's a subordinate officer, and turns to him and says, Parson, pray, because only God Almighty is going to save this fort. Why are they saying that? Because the memo that came over from Fort Henry is these gunboats are invulnerable. We can't stop them. 
leaving off the factor that the gunboats got pummeled over there and two of them very badly damaged. The other thing that Fort Donaldson has that Henry does not is plunging fire. So they can shoot down at an angle like this. The roof of the gunboat is not armored at all. At Fort Henry, you've got water battery or water level guns going up to a sloped casemate, which you get deflective capabilities on this. Mm -hmm. I'm a tank guy. So think the front of a German Tiger II or a Panther tank, sloped armor mm -hmm. for deflection, same concept. So when you have sloped armor and plunging fire, that you've also negated the sloped armor. It can be penetrated. This is only two and a half inches. It's not four inches or six inches, as will come later on with other ships. So as these gunboats show up, the other thing their problem is, is they're shooting uphill. They're looking, the gun ports on these things are massive. If you ever go to Mud Island in Memphis, they have a three-quarter scale city-class gunboat there uh, in the gun forward gun deck. And you can look through and see how big the guns are and how big the gun ports are, and then imagine a quarter scale larger. It's a huge Thing to look through. So the gun commander is looking down the barrel and he's got his little device and trying to cite elevation to try to take these batteries out. And it's not explosive rounds, it's kinetic energy. They're trying to punch through the, the earthworks and the conveyor guns are trying to punch through the iron plating. The mortar boats are not here where they could have sat and just you know shot them overhead with explosive rounds. You've got the, the nice picture of Island Number 10. The mortar boats are off to your right, and they're just shooting over the tops of the trees and exploding above the Confederate garrison there. That's why Island Number 10 is going to fall. Um, that would have happened at Fort Donaldson. The mortar boats will show up a couple, three days later, but uh, not in time to, to be of effect. So what happens with the Navy is they, when you're shooting uphill, they're going to tend to overshoot, and in fact, they do. A lot of those solid balls are just going to sail right over heads of the water battery garrison. Uh, a number of years ago in the town of Dover, uh, they were putting in a new parking lot at the county building and in the ravine they were building, and they uncovered a overshot Navy ball about a mile off target. Wow. So that was one heck of an overshoot. Yeah. Uh, and they're missing a lot of the Confederate garrison. And meanwhile, the Confederate garrison is – just pummeling these guys, particularly with the two uh, the two uh, um, Columbiads. But the Columbiad recoil, as I said earlier, is so vicious they have carriage issues. And the 10-inch locks into place. So unless a Union gunboat sails in front of its field of fire, it can no longer pivot. And a number of rounds will start building up the powder in the 6.5-inch rifle gun, and they're trying to use the ramrod to, to put the powder in, and it won't go. So they have to stop. And if you know anything about artillery, they get this giant wine corkscrew called the worm, and they have to scrape it in there with some water to dig out the powder, ram it down or sponge it out with water, tilt the barrel forward to clean all the gunk out, look and make sure it's fine. And then they put the round back in and then, or the powder bag and then the powder and then seed it. Well, it got so bad before they could actually clean this thing out. The ramrod was bending. They cut a small sampling and finally got the round properly seated because if you don't get that powder up tight against the breech uh -huh. and you set your explosion off the kit, you get a breech explosion and the gun bursts. That's what happened at Fort Henry, uh, probably with the 24 pounder blew up um, a breech bl a blast. So uh, that gun is going to be out of action. And then later on, after they clean it out, the, the same thing in the excitement when they're punching the vent prick in it, they snap the vent prick off and, and spike their own gun. 
the 10 inch you know runs out of field of fire as the gunboats close up and that's what what wants to do hey it worked at fort donaldson let's get closer well when you get into a thousand yards the 32 pounders can start roaring into action and anything like a boat david you know those nice funnels that bring uh, fresh air down into the engine room uh around the gun deck and to vent fumes out um your your funnels that that, that draw fumes out of your out of your boilers in the engine room uh all of that kind of stuff and the pilot houses being vertical armored pilot houses all that stuff is getting pummeled in fact that one of the guns the park service put a nice little plaque there which is great because when you go into the gun pits they've got these little stories now and this one uh turned artillery guy gets up to to yank the lander he gets up and he puts the the, the fuse in there and then jumps down and gets away and leans away from his gun. He goes, all right, boys, see me take a chimney. And he yanks the lander. The gun roars and rolls back on the carriage and hits the chimney of, of one of the ironclads. And just all of a sudden smoke starts pouring out of where the big hole is inside of the top. Uh-huh. So these ships are getting pounded. The other cool thing that, that the first four guns that did, the ones closest to the river manned by the 50th Tennessee, because of their angle of deflection on the river, they learned how to skip 32-pound cannonballs. Now, how many of you, uh, you, me, your viewers, friends, when you were little kids, went to a river or lake and skipped stones on the river or the lake? We've all done it. Yeah. When you get your right angle of deflection, water's incredibly dense, you can skip your cannonball. And guess what happens to USS Pittsburgh? Two rounds in the bow below the waterline, and she starts going down like this. They uncouple the bow guns and roll them to the stern to increase the weight in the stern. They will kick the pumps into overdrive, cut her power, and she maneuvers out of the danger zone. There's going to be fire at her the entire the the entire time. And Pittsburgh uh, will actually uh, will, will take two below the waterline. Uh, and she will actually get, you know, 20 other hits during the action. Um, but she's not the first ship that, that will get disabled. The Louisville will get disabled after 36 hits, including the steering. And then she'll cut her power and, and drift out, out of way. And then you've got uh, the St. Louis, which is the flagship. 59 hits. Uh, she's pummeled. The flag, uh, the, the pilot house is penetrated. You've got guys killed or wounded. Flag officer Foote is wounded. He will die of that wound in 1863. Um, that's why guys like Charles Davis and Port and David Porter will take over the fleet later on. Um, just absolutely pummeled. The one that gets pummeled the most is Carondelet. She will make it within about 500 yards and uh, make fast almost against the eastern bank of the Cumberland River. And she is just getting, because the guns will just start to pivot, and they just open fire and just pummel uh, that ship. And she will get 54 hits, cut the power, and will uh, will retreat. Badly, badly damaged. The funnels, the tower, the the smokestacks, everything. She has a gunner named Matthew Arthur on one of the bow guns, who all the way downstream will keep serving his peace and roaring his gun back in defiance to the Confederate garrison. Yeah, we may be licked, but I'm still going to shoot at you and, and try to see what happens. He will be awarded later on a Naval Medal of Honor for standing to his gun like that. The aftermath of the gunboats defeated, the rebel yell echoes through the hills and swales of Dover. Grant hears it. Uh He's chagrined, 
He's sitting there probably shaking his head. He goes, okay, well, something happened on Foote's side of the, of the plan. So I'll meet with him and see what we're going to do next. Colonel Forrest is 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 got to be elated. Pillow, ni- after about 90 minutes of action, sends a telegram up to, to Bowling Green, tells Sidney Johnson, hey, uh, uh, just never mind that telegram of 90 or so minutes ago. We just defeated them soundly, and they're retreating. Which makes uh, uh, Johnson probably have to wonder what kind of guy's in charge of this garrison. Yeah, <laughs> you know, first that we're we're not going to hold. Now we've defeated them, t- type of stuff, uh, and me, that just still kind of accelerates uh, um, Johnson wanting to get out of Bowling Green and getting to Nashville. Mm-hmm. So Grant will meet that evening with Flag Officer Foot. That means he'll ride to the riverbank, take a boat out onto the ship because he's got a plan that has to kind of stay in place. And that is a naval threat on the river. I need to leave one or two of your gunboats, if possible, on the river, or my thing just falls apart. And I'll have to, you know, lay siege to this place or or, or whatever. And it's like, man, we just got pummeled. I really would like to pull back to, to uh, Cairo, fix the ships, uh, you know, and then and then come back again. Uh, I don't know if he tells them the mortar boats are on the way or the Benton's on the way. Um, Grant doesn't mention anything about it that I've ever found, but uh, that's where Grant is. On the Confederate side of things, that order from Sidney Johnston is we need to bring the garrison out as much as possible to save them and get them to Nashville to join up with the eighteen to twenty thousand or so men that are that are coming down from Bowling Green, and the twenty or thousand or so men that are at Columbus, Kentucky, have yet to start retreating, uh, because Leonidas Polk, the uh, commander there, the, the former bishop turned general, uh, has now begun a long and illustrious career in the American Civil War of not obeying an order he didn't particularly care for. Mm-hmm. So he ignores that order until after the fall of Fort Donelson. Um, so the Confederates meet and go, okay, the order is to get this garrison out. And they had tried to do something on the 14th, but their little plan kind of got discovered by, by a couple of Union pickets, and, a, and a, a shot goes zinging by a pillow. And he goes, oh, everybody back to their positions. We, we've been discovered. So nothing's going to happen on the 14th. But the plan is still a, a great idea. Keeping in mind that Grant's got two divisions on the field, Lou Wallace finally gets the call uh, uh, on the 12th and 13th. Okay, bring your people up because I need to fill in the center of my line. So you see Smith's division on Grant's left. Uh, by the way, Smith actually has uh, four brigades. The other brigade that he has is is um, John MacArthur's, who's going to get loaned to McClernand. Uh, so he's going to hold that area there and and uh, uh, try to prevent an escape across the Hickman Creek. He's facing the Eddyville Road where Butler's troops are. And then McClernand is edging down the Winds Ferry Road uh, to try to get to a series of hills above the Charlotte Road that interdict the Cumberland River. Because if he gets a couple batteries of artillery, he now cuts the Confederate supply line, which is five steamships coming from Nashville and Clarksville and putting in at the Dover Hotel. That's not only Buckner's headquarters, that's the logistics point. So if you put artillery on there, you've now cut the line of supply. Those steamboats can't get any closer, and you've cut the Confederate escape route. Again, Grant is thinking uh, Clausewitzian. I want to bag this 17,000-man garrison so I don't have to deal with them anymore. Absolute great plan. 
Um, the the uh, third division under Wallace gets met with John Thayer. Thayer is the colonel of the 1st Nebraska Infantry, promoted to brigade command for this. Uh, a fine soldier, pre uh, a later governor of Nebraska. Nebraska is only a territory at this time. And, and um, he joins... Uh, Wallace. He's a borrowed brigade from Don Carlos Buell, and other reinforcements are going to show up during the during this uh, day of the 14th and 15th as as well. And you see where Wallace's position is now. If you look up the Pinery Road and the Indian Creek, and you see Confederate artillery on the left there, uh, which is Graves' Kentucky Battery, and there were Hyman's uh, brigade is who had been the Fort uh, Henry Garrison and Manny's Tennessee Battery. They cover that area by fire because that area is flooding and you're not going to build trenches in the valley floor. Wallace can see that, that, okay, there's 12 pieces of Union or, or Confederate artillery on this high ground and supporting our uh, Union infantry on the slopes. Uh, I'm not going to assault that way. So what happens with uh, McClernand is he does not have enough combat power to extend Grant's right to get across the Charlotte Road and to get artillery on those hills. In fact, he gets to the top of Dudley's Hill, which is the hill to the just to the south of the Charlotte Road. And the only reason he can put troops on there is he borrows John um, MacArthur's brigade of Illinois troops, uh, and they do an all-night march behind McClernand's division, and they will show up on the top of uh, um, Bufford, uh, or excuse me, Dudley's Hill, Bufford Hollows to the front, and and uh, or Barn Hollow, Bufford Hollows to the rear. And they're told that the Confederates are only a couple hundred yards to your front. Do not light any fires. If you want to cook uh, food or, or boil some coffee, you've got to go down slope, but you better leave some troops up here, at least as a skirmish line. So that's what happens. No entrenches, entrenchments at all on the entire Union side, except uh, in Wallace's position where one of the Illinois batteries will actually entrench. Um, so th they're in the up there, and then the plan is to keep funneling troops at sunlight on the 15th to try to close the Charlotte Road. There is Union cavalry out there. There's a handful of Illinois companies, uh, a company of the 2nd U.S. Regulars, a company of the 4th U.S. Regulars uh, out there, but but um, it's not enough to really hold it. And on your, your map there, you see a massing of Confederate troops. This is in obedience to the orders from Sidney Johnson to mass uh, and then drive back Grant's troops about two miles. The road they want is not the Charlotte Road because the creek down below, the Lick Creek, has flooded so much that it's not going to be safe to get men through icy water that'll be uh, almost up to their necks. So their next objective is the Forge Road. The Forge Road is if you see the ACE of WHL Wallace's Brigade, that's the Forge Road running down to Lick Creek. If, as when they cross there um, in that area where the Smith's Ford is, where Forrest will go out later that night, the, uh, the water depth is only what they call saddle skirt deep. So on, on a, uh, a man that's about six feet, that's about mid chest to lower chest, and they can, they can get out. Uh, without, they're worried about hypothermia. They don't call it hypothermia then. Uh, about these men freezing to death because of exposure. But the objective is the Forge Road because the, the creek is much narrower. Uh, it leads to the Charlotte Road uh, after it goes by um, an iron forge a couple miles to the south. 
uh, and then joins the Charlotte Road and gets down to Charlotte, which they'll end a march there, and then the next day march on to Nashville. So that's that's the objective. So in order to mass combat power, if you know anything about linear warfare, I'm a big Napoleonic and Frederick the Great era, our Rev War era, uh, where you have linear warfare. Nothing's different in the American Civil War than you know, Wellington facing off Napoleon at Waterloo. Same thing. You line up a bunch of guys on your side. Napoleon lines up a bunch of guys on his side, and you try to overwhelm the other army at a point of contact, which Frederick the Great was utterly brilliant at doing. The Confederates are going to do the same thing. It's a Napoleonic column of brigades, which is easy to march, and you don't have uh, stragglers like you would in a linear formation. So it's a stacked mass depth of column on the Charlotte Pike. And what they will do is starting about six-ish, about six o'clock in the morning, they will start to slowly move forward in column, drive the uh, Union Cavalry screen off of the Charlotte Road. And that's what Forrest will do with his brigade of Confederate cavalry. This is the first Confederate cavalry brigade in the Western Theater will basically slam the Union cavalry off the field and they're not heard from for the rest of the battle. And then he will act uh, in concert with the Union, uh, or excuse me, the Confederate infantry as they pivot and march out. Now, when they start to make contact with MacArthur's skirmish line down in the Barn Hollow about 6.30 in the morning, you can hear gunshots breaking out. Um, the, the, The beating of the drum to you know, get to quarters and, and get your muskets and let's get ready for some action. Um, since you have a English audience, that's the order back then was stand to, um, you know, you grab your weapons and be ready to do something. Um, they So they start to form the three regiments on top of um, Dudley's Hill. And John MacArthur is, is a colonel of the 12th Illinois. He's a Scotsman. From Chicago, and I'm a Chicago area native, as I like to say, Chicago, where all good Scotsmen come from. Uh, their, their first battle flag has a Scots thistle on it. He, his boys are ready to fight. He's got the 9th Illinois, who's a German regiment, and he's got the 41st Illinois under Colonel Isaac Pugh. Uh, and these guys are ready to give it all. And, and here comes the skirmish line out of the Barn Hollow, reporting to Colonel MacArthur and saying, behind us is the biggest wall of butternut and gray, we've ever seen. And it's a giant, giant juggernaut coming uh, out of the hollow in a Napoleonic formation. But that's not the formation they're going to stay in because as the sun starts, well, not the sun because it's not going to be sunny, but as the light starts to raise, it's a cold day on the night of the 13th, 14th, three to four inches of snow and sleet hit the ground. The temperatures went from the high 40s, low 50s. That's uh, centigrade, by the way down to about 10 degrees centigrade. Uh, I don't remember my Celsius conversion, so I apologize for that. Uh, But that's going to be below zero Celsius. I know that. Um, Pretty pretty nicely below zero Celsius. Uh, So it's kind of hazy. And then when you start shooting off a bunch of black powder muskets and artillery pieces, it leaves a bunch of white smoke all over the place. So visibility is going to drop quite a bit. So uh, these guys will form up, and and your standard formation of three, uh, three units. So you've got three regiments in MacArthur's brigade. He will put two regiments up on the line, 
Basically, his ninth uh, Illinois on the left, his 12th Illinois, or should be his uh, 41st Illinois on the right, and his own 12th Illinois in reserve. That is a typical formation used even today. Uh, the U.S. Marine Corps platoon or squads have uh, fire teams of three men. So you have a maneuver plus laying down suppressing fire. You have three men do this, three men do that, three men do this. And, and it's a very worthwhile uh, formation. And that reserve unit is there in case they're needed. You don't know what the Confederates are going to do. Are they just going to come head on and try to bulldoze through your two regiments, in which case you've got a, a backstop? Are they going to flank you? Are they going to try to envelop your line? That's what the 12th Illinois is going to have to learn as this pipe breaks out. So it breaks out. And as the line makes contact with MacArthur's line, they start to shake out from a column into line of battle. So the right hand of the column will start to shake out to the Confederate right, and the left hand will go up the Charlotte Road and then start to turn and go up uh, a Barn, not Barn Hollow, uh, Dudley's Hill, square on and start to confront MacArthur's two regiments uh, that are facing in line of battle uh, and take them square on. Meanwhile, Forrest and some of the other infantrymen, uh, particularly uh, uh, Wharton's Virginians, will head off uh, down into the Bufford Hollow to try to envelop the Union position on Dudley's Hill. So contact made about 6.30 in the morning, uh, and then they start to uh, shake out into line of battle. Uh, uh, Simonton's uh, Mississippi guys will start taking on uh, Oglesby's uh, uh, guys of uh, um, his, you know, his brigade there, Oglesby's brigade, his right flank regiment, who are basically out on the part of uh, uh, Dudley's Hill, about 100 or so yards. And, and uh, so they're starting to score up against Simonton, and, and Oglesby sees what's happening, so he gets his boys up and ready. Meanwhile, uh, as uh, MacArthur starts to see what's happening, he will deploy his 12th Illinois into a refused flank position because of what Forrest and, and the Virginians are doing down there in the hollow. So his two regiments are online, and then the third regiment, the 12th Illinois, comes up to, th to this and ties in with the 41st and then refuses the flank and forms like a door. Mm -hmm. They still do that in the military today. So that covers your flank. And then as the Confederates keep doing this, then the 12th Illinois detaches and does this. So they start to turn, and they're doing it on MacArthur's left and MacArthur's right, the other issue is lack of ammunition. 40 rounds in your cartridge box, two rounds a minute, you're, you're out of ammo in 20 minutes of combat. You're looking at the cartridge boxes and ammo boxes of the dead and the wounded. You're rifling those to try to sustain some kind of fire. You're slowly being pushed back. Confederates charge. MacArthur countercharges. MacArthur loses his two... Uh, two pieces of artillery from a Missouri battery that are up there as his fire support. Confederates will capture that um, and, and slowly push back. This is not a route. This is not a break-and-run situation. It is a slow pushback to get the Federals off of Dudley's Hill and then slam into Oglesby's brigade and do the same thing to them on the Forge uh, Lane, which is perpendicular to the Forge Road. So they will start pushing back. MacArthur will fall back into Bufford Hollow towards the Union hospitals and supply area. 
to reform and re-equip. And eventually, Oglesby is in the same situation because you'll see the Confederates shaking off to their left where Simonton's guys are, and then Forrest and the Virginians uh, and Baldwin's Mississippians will swing around towards uh, Lick Creek there where these nice red arrows are. So they're turning this position. It's a, it's a great maneuver, but it's a slow slog. So it's finally going to be um, you get back to the uh, road down to uh, Forge Road there. It's about a three-and-a-half-hour to four-hour push, and this is not a long walk. You're looking at a mile, mile and a quarter, something like that. So it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long slog. So Grant is not here. McClernand is sending messages to Lou Wallace. And Grant has left orders, don't bring on a general engagement because of what happens on the 13th, where McClernand is marching down the road, the guns there from Hyman's brigade, the artillery battery, Manny's Tennesseans, opens fires on him to interdict him. So he will send a couple of brigades up to try to capture it and gets roundly defeated. So Grant is not a McClernand fan. By the way, uh, Smith does the same thing, a reconnaissance in force on his side of the line um, on the 13th. But Grant's issues orders do not bring on a general engagement. So McClernand says, my right is being heavily assailed. I need support. Send reinforcements. So the staff officer rides over to Lou Wallace, hands him the note. Wallace takes the note and says, uh, Grant says, do not bring on an engagement. I have no support to give you. Sends the note back. McClernand responds, maybe you don't understand. I'm in trouble. Oglesby is now starting to be shoved out of, out of line. Uh, so I'm down to Wallace's brigade. Oglesby's out of line. MacArthur's out of line. I need help. So Lou Wallace, on his own accord, will send forward the third uh, brigade from his division, the new one under Charles Cruft, who's also borrowed from uh, the Army of the Ohio and Don Carlos Buell. So Cruft marches up the Winds Ferry Road behind Wallace's brigade. His lead element is the Green 25th Kentucky. He sees gun or hears gunfire to his front. He sees smoke in his front. He does not know what's in his front. The 25th Kentucky forms line of battle and opens fire into the backs of the 11th Illinois, the 29th Illinois, uh, and those two regiments start to fall apart. Now, my I had an Illinois ancestor in the 29th Illinois, who thankfully was not hurt in that, uh, but the 8th Illinois collapses. And they will now, this is the closest we get to a route. Those guys break and they run through Cruft's lines and disorganize Cruft's position. The only guys kind of left standing are the 31st Illinois of John Logan, the 11th Illinois under Thomas Ransom, W.H.L. Wallace is the colonel of the 11th and and is um, been pumped to brigade command. Those guys are basically left. Logan gets wounded, 31st Illinois, running low on ammo, falls back, and that leaves the 11th Illinois about at the junction of the Forge Road and the, the uh, Winds Ferry Road, and they are standing like a stone wall, stopping everything the Confederates are tossing at them, even though they've now been outflanked. Gruff will form down to their right, but far down to their right, down in the hollow. And uh, Wall, uh, 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 Ransom will uh, receive a, a courier from Lou Wallace to, uh, hey, fall back. You're, you're going to get clobbered if you stay out there. Uh, that courier is killed, so he doesn't get the notice. Meanwhile, on the Confederate side, Forrest meets with Thomas uh, or Roger Hansen of the 2nd Kentucky of Buckner's people, 
Uh, Buckner's been hitting uh, uh, McClernand, by the way, the entire time with artillery fire and infantry assaults to try to add fire and support to this attack and pin down uh, Wallace's brigade. So finally, the 2nd Kentucky of, of uh, Buckner's division uh, meets with Forrest says, look, we need to hit these guys on two sides. I'll hit them from the front. Forrest takes his cavalry around into the barn hollow and will pop up behind the 11th. And the account of uh, Lieutenant John Churchill comes into play here where he says, I'm in the center of the line with the color guard and Colonel, Colonel uh, Ransom. When all of a sudden men around me start falling forward, that means they're being shot from behind. I turn around and I see a line of mounted Confederate cavalry firing into my rear. I inform the colonel, he turns around, orders an about face of the regiment, charge at the double quick bayonets, charge. So they start to trot towards this wall of cavalry. Horsemen have um, have uh, uh, car single shot carbines and a handful of Colt revolving rifles. And they're laying down a wall of fire on these guys. Uh, Churchill takes a round through uh, his left thigh doesn't hit the bone. He goes down, gets back up, and starts to waddle towards. He's, he starts to pull his pistol up because a trooper is getting ready to open fire on him. He doesn't get his pistol up in time. That trooper shoots, hits his right thigh, flattens against the thigh bone, goes down his thigh, and comes to rest against the, the knee and shatters the bone. He goes down on the ground. His head hits the body of a dead comrade of the 11th Illinois. His leg will, his broken leg will rest on a tree branch, and he will lay there for over 24 hours. Wow. Uh, and, and he does not die because a Confederate surgeon looks at him and says, you're going to bleed out, nothing I can do, sorry, because it's so bloody cold, his wounds freeze shut. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing story. Yes. Meanwhile, so Ransom, who will, by the way, camp, uh, later command a division under Grant, um, he pulls his boys back, and, and they will lose 65% um, of that regiment at Fort Donelson in this one fight. Those are 1864 casualty levels. Those oh, are enormous yeah. casualty levels. Oh, yeah. Then they go on to Shiloh and lose another 50%. So that regiment gets shot to pieces in his first two battles. So they're falling back. Grant finally gets a communication from Wallace that says, hey, I've sent Cruft forward. Our right's just getting creamed. Uh, can't stop him. Uh, I'm sending forward uh, troops. What do you want us to do? Grant comes back on the battlefield, rises, rides up to about where the Winsferry Road is with Wallace, meets Wallace, meets McLernan, and everybody else. And he's got reinforcements coming up. Uh, and... and he says, all right, they're trying to break out. He's deduced that. And he says, if they're strong on our right, they have to be weak on our left. Because, again, linear warfare, if you're going to hit here, you've got to weaken this part. And that's exactly uh, uh, what happens. If you look on your map that you have up, where it says 30th Tennessee there, that was entirely Buckner's division's position up to about where the apex of the line is, that's uh, uh, Porter's Tennessee Battery. That's about where the Park Visitor Center is now. Uh, and uh, uh, the park road that runs inside. And then you've got the the rest of Buckner's guys in the 30th who've been pulled over, nine companies uh, to hold what had been held by a division of infantry that morning. We've guesstimated it out to about one man every eight feet mm -hmm. uh, behind the trenches and the abati to their front. And these guys have flintlocks. 
so it's not uh, what you think is a formidable force, but let's see how they do later on. Um, so Grant deduces what's going on. He deduces it's a breakout. He sees dead and wounded Confederates in his front with packs on because when you're breaking out, you're supposed to go with your packs. That's the plan. Buckner's guys have the packs because they're going to be the rear guard. They're going to swing out onto the road and advance and take a rear guard position and hold anything Grant throws while the rest of the garrison, such as they can, gets on the Forge Road and gets out of town uh, toward Charlotte. This happens about 2.15, 2.30 in the afternoon. Buckner's in place. Grant's on the field starting to, uh, to rally his people. And Pillow rides up and says, fantastic. You've driven him back a couple of miles. We have a secure line of supply. Let's all go back to the ditches. And Butler looks at him and says, why do we have to go back to the ditches? Well, my people did not bring their stuff with them. Well, one brigade did, hmm. but the rest of them did not. So in the meeting the night before, the Army has a, a thing. The British Army, I'm sure, has a similar thing called the commander's intent. And the commander's intent for this mission was to break out the garrison. Therefore, you put your packs on because we're not coming back. Mm -hmm. We're going to get to our objective, objective achieved. Now get on the road and save as many people as you can. So obviously Pillow did not understand the commander's intent and more importantly, did not pass that down to his other brigade commanders. But one of them found out about it and did it on, on their own. So you've got Buckner with the packs, one of, of Pillow's guys with the packs. By the way, this division's under command of Bushrod Johnson, uh, the, the fourth brigadier there, and also West Pointer. But Pillow just overruns the guy pretty much. Um, so that's the set in place. And, and then uh, 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 Floyd shows up and goes, what are you talking about falling back? Why have we been fighting since six-ish in the morning? We've got our objectives. We're supposed to get these guys out. And Pillow just overrides him by sheer force of will. So back they go, with oh, Buckner right. slowly pulling back. So, so all, all, yeah, sorry, all of that, uh, you know, fighting for basically nothing. Yep. Wow. A lot of guys killed and wounded. Yeah. For for for, for a a absolutely botched uh, botched objective. So oh, the okay. second thing. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, okay. The second thing Grant does is he's got his right division commander in the right place at the right time. Mm -hmm. Charles Ferguson Smith was commandant of cadets at West Point when both Grant and Sherman were there. He's the guy that Halleck wanted to command the expedition. When when uh, Grant gets his brigadier star and gets tapped to command it, he has his sit down with with uh, Charles Smith and says, I hope there's, there's no issues. You know how I feel about you. Uh, uh, you you're my hero. You know, just idol worshiping, if you will. They get along fantastically. Charles Smith sucks it up and basically says, "I will obey whatever orders you you issue to me." Now he's gonna—he's already loaned one of his brigades, which is MacArthur's, to McClernand. The other brigade is being loaned to Wallace. You see Morgan L. Smith's guys there, which includes a couple of Zouave regiments, the 11th Indiana, and uh, um, I forget who the the uh, um, is it the 8th Indiana? No, 11th Indiana. Uh, one of the Missouri regiments is, is a Zouave unit. Um, and, and so that knocks Smith down to Lawman and Cook. Lawman and Cook are on the opposite ridge, as you see. The valley road in between there is now the Park Service Road down to their maintenance shed. 
So when the order comes from Grant to take your division into the fort, they must be weak on your side. Smith says, I will do it. He gets his troops ready to go, and he will form his line of battle. The leading regiment in Jacob Lauman's brigade is a brand new unit that has just shown up the night before. It's the 2nd Iowa Infantry under Colonel Tuttle. These guys are itching to get their, their flag unfurled once more because on the, their, uh, their line or, or their time in St. Louis, they were tasked to hold or to protect an institution and something happened, some things got stolen. And when Halleck is sending people to the steamboats to go help Grant, he tells them you are going to march with your colors furled because you did not uh, o- obey my orders. And you will uh, march uh, with, with, the, uh, with the colors furled. So that's what's going to happen. So these guys are itching, itching to get their honor back and to do something amazing and, and to get that back. So, so as they form up and start down the slopes, Cook's mission is basically going to kind of keep the, the Confederate left pinned down, particularly Porter's Tennessee Battery in that apex of the line right there those 632, uh, excuse me, the six-pound six, six pound guns that are there. Um, and they're being pinned down also by a portion of the uh, Burgess Western Sharpshooters, who will later become the 66th Illinois, but for this battle, they're the 14th Missouri. First Sharpshooter Regiment in the Union Army, they're equipped with uh, Dimmick hunting rifles, and they do the range estimation, and that's all they do is the um, open skirmish order, and, and, oh, that guy's 500 yards, I got him, no problem. Um, and there's portions of that regiment on either side of Cook and Lauman's line to help pin down the Confederates. <clears throat> so as Lauman advances forward, on his left, 14th Missouri down towards Hickman Creek, then he's got a new regiment, the 52nd Indiana, absolutely green unit. Then in his center, and divided into two battalions, uh, one in front and one behind in mass is his second, uh, second Iowa. To their right is a part of the 25th Indiana to their right is the 7th Iowa, a veteran regiment um, who got shot to pieces at uh, Battle of Belmont, November of 61, uh, about 50% casualties there. And then you've got the 14th Iowa, and then you've got the skirmishers of the 14th Missouri, and then you've got Cook's guys deployed to the right of that. So it's a two-brigade front, and up they go. So they reform at the bottom of the ravine there. There's a creek, and there's a rail fence, and they start up the slope. And Smith is an amazing guy. He is unafraid. He rides his lines on his white horse. Uh, uh, He's got white hair, a long, flowing white mustache. One of the second Iowa soldiers says that his mustache was so long that it was flowing over his shoulders. That's one heck of a mustache that this guy had, that it was flowing over his shoulders. And he's he's riding in between the lines of, of the 1st and 2nd Battalions of the 2nd Iowa in particular, and he, as Colonel Tuttle says, he urges us up the slope with a mixture of entreaties and oaths. This man is not afraid to cuss up a storm like any good sailor could do. Get up that slope, damn you, he says. I will have no skulkers in my, in my attack. And he will swat some rear ends with the flat end of his sword. I will have no skulkers in my my army. Get up the slopes, damn you. And the big line is, you volunteered to die for your country, and now you can. 
Now to modern Americans and to modern Europeans and every you know everybody else is like wow that's a pretty draconian thing to say. Yeah. This is 19th century America where death was very common. Your kid might not last till 2 years old. Your wife could die in childbirth. Your son could die at 15. Uh death was common. So it was a very different look at death. So when Charles Smith says that he knows that that these guys expect they're going to get shot, hurt, and probably die. And that's not a battle cry that that he took lightly. And his key line was, you're only volunteers. You're not regulars like I am. Mm-hmm. But so it's but he urges these guys on. And the key thing that he tells them is load your muskets, uh, but don't cap them. Now, when I was a young guy, I used to say, Oh, that's really stupid. That means you can't stop and shoot back. That's the point. Mm-hmm. Because when you stop to shoot back, you're now in the kill zone. And when you stop and exchange fire with your enemy, your time in the kill zone goes up exponentially. As opposed to keep moving forward, keep moving forward. Nowadays, you've got fire maneuver with other units laying down bases of fire. They didn't do that back in those days. But think Emory Upton at the Mule Shoe at Spotsylvania. Same thing. There's five regiments in mass in line, go in loaded but uncapped. Cap your muskets when you crack the line and then open fire. And that's what Puddle's guys are going to do. They get to the top of the road, uh, and they will open fire and break the Confederate line. Now, on the way up the slope, the first color bearer of the the 2nd Iowa shot down, 2nd, 3rd, 4th shot down, some killed, some wounded. Um, One of the Cap Company commanders makes it to the top, and he's mortally wounded. He dies urging his men forward to crack the end of the trenches. The fifth guy to pick up the color is Corporal Voltaire Payne Twombly. Obviously, his parents were into political philosophy, named for the French philosopher Voltaire and our uh, American philosopher of the Revolutionary War, Thomas Paine. Um, And then the last name of Twombly. He picks up his colors, is shot in the chest with a spent round, had something to block the, the wound from penetrating, is knocked down by the force, gets up, picks up his colors, charges up the slope and slams them on the outer works, followed down the lines by other Union regimental colors. And he will be awarded the Medal of Honor in the 1890s for that feat. The park owns his medal. That flag will be sent back to Iowa. This is Iowa's big time uh, up to this point in the Civil War, although the 7th Iowa slaughtered at Belmont in November 61, pretty big. Uh, they will that flag gets sent back to the legislature of the state and will be hung on the wall behind the Speaker of the House's rostrum and will remain there for a number of years. I've seen the flag. It's pretty sad shape now because of that. Yeah. Um, but Twombly, Twombly will be awarded his Medal of Honor. The line breaks, and you see where you have the 30th Tennessee on your map. Mm-hmm. That is a deep ravine. The 30th Tennessee guys fall back into that ravine. The second Iowa run into the ravine and chase them. The 52nd Indiana comes up to the top of the ravine, sees what's going on, and opens fire, thinking they're going to help the second Iowa by shooting Confederates and instead shoot into the back of the second Iowa, who turn around and fire a shot back at the Indiana guys. And then that's when Lauman says, get your... Get your uh, Hoosiers off this battlefield. You're done. I don't want you here for the time being. 
And then on the hill on the other side of 30th Tennessee, the Confederates are bringing out the 49th, 50th Tennessee from the garrison of Fort Donaldson to entrench and to shoot down into the ravine. That ground is actually higher ground than where the Confederate outer line is, where, where the 30th Tennessee, where Butler was earlier. Mm-hmm. So they're shooting down. So the second Iowa gets pulled back. Uh, Hook has, has pinned down the Tennesseans on there, uh, and, and uh, uh, some supporting artillery has come up to the ridge, and they're opening fire uh, to try to pin down the Tennesseans uh, at Porter's Battery. But what happens to Buckner's people when the order to retreat is happens earlier that day? He comes back. He marches behind the lines where Hyman's brigade is, marches down the road behind where uh, Porter's battery is, and then gets up to the crossroads there, uh, the, the Eddyville Road uh, crossroads that leads down to Fort Donaldson. Uh, there you can see part of it on your map. The Sally Port is to the uh, right, heading towards Dover, um, and sees a bunch of guys in blue where a bunch of guys in gray and butternut had been earlier that day. So at that crossroads, a gunfight will break out. And, and there's some interesting accounts there. The, the second Kentucky breaks into a big fight. The 18th Mississippi shows up, and one of their uh, soldiers are on a high ground there. And he says, the, the, the entire front in front of me is a sea of blue. Uh, and the, 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 this fight will go on, and the fighting to the right, where the Confederates are on the high ground um, above the ravine there, goes on until the sun goes down. <clears throat> okay. Now, go ahead. Yeah, I, so, got, you've got to have some questions and comments. Let me get something to Yeah, write. so um, again, it's going to – so they've retreated back into uh, their fortifications. You've had the battle on that side of the battlefield, and things are not going well for the Confederates now. So uh, during the night, they decide to surrender, don't they? So tell us a little bit about that. The key to that surrender discussion is exactly what happened on Charles Ferguson Smith's side of the line. <clears throat> they – Grant knows that he's got the outer works cracked. Um, he knows that he's been driving back the retreating Confederates. In fact, they get all the way to the Forge Road that night by the time the night comes down. So he's recovered the bulk of his line. He's got reinforcements hitting the battlefield. Another five, 6,000 guys showing up that night from the steamboats. On the Confederate side of things, they go to the Rice House, which is... Not there anymore, but it's about 50, 60 yards away from where the Surrender House is, which was Buckner's headquarters. The Rice House was Gideon Pillow's headquarters. We do not know where John Floyd's headquarters was. I've never found it. Nobody I know has ever found it. Somewhere in beautiful Dover, which had a whopping about 350 people at this time. <clears throat> so they meet at the Rice House. All right, what happened? Well, we broke out. We got to the Forge Road. That was the objective. Somebody called everybody back. I don't know why. Round and around and around it goes. So Buckner chimes in and says, well, I've lost my position where I was this morning. Uh, The Federals now have it in strength. And the argument becomes between Buckner and mainly Pillow. And and uh, uh, Pillow says, well, can you hold your position? And Buckner says, no, I can't hold my position. In point of fact, maybe Buckner could have held some of it because, again, the higher ground above the ravine was better, and he would have been shooting down on Smith's position. But where the crossroads is is a low ravine that's not good defensive uh, defensive terrain. There's a couple little hills there. 
but could, they could have been pushed off, plus would have been under fire Union artillery. So Buckner has probably got a pretty good point, and I think by this time he's pretty fed up with working for uh, uh, Floyd and Pillow. Uh, I mean, just really, really fed up with this. So the argument breaks out. I think you can hold your position, says Pillow. No, I can't, General Pillow. I know my position. Yes, you can. No, I can't. Yes, you can. Floyd's sort of silent, and then finally it's Buckner that brings around the talk. Maybe we've done all we can do, and maybe we should surrender. Now, this account comes from a Confederate staff officer at the meeting who wrote it in the Confederate Veteran magazine published after the war and which the basis of the old park service film that they showed uh at the surrender house which i which i think might be on the park service of fort Dawson national battlefield website watch it because the dialogue is really really accurate taken from this and it, it kind of plays out really well the drama of that discussion the weird side of it is, is this was shot, I think, in the 1960s. Buckner's mustache looks amazing, amazingly bad. Um, uh, the overacting is off the charts. Uh, Colonel Pillow finds out about this meeting and comes in and says, are we surrendering the garrison because I did not bring my people here to surrender? And this is after you know Pillow and Floyd have talked about what they're going to do, which I'll backtrack to in a minute. And he looks like a homicidal maniac, and you know, by the actor that portrays him. <laughs> but it's 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 funny. It's a funny film from that point of view. But it's amazingly accurate in terms of what went on. Now, the modern Park Service film, they talk about the, the what the discussions. Kendall Gotts in the discussion is a talking head. It's a good film, and and um, I just kind of miss the old one, I guess, for the flavor. So, what happens is. After uh, uh, Floyd and Pillow acquiesced to Buckner's decision, again, being the number three guy, Floyd one, Buckner, uh, Pillow two, um, Floyd says, you know, there's probably no other guy here that the Federals would rather capture than me. What does that come from? Well, before the war, he was President Franklin Buchanan's Secretary of War, and in the aftermath of the Harper's Ferry-John Brown affair of 1859, will transfer to Southern arsenals a bunch of weapons and a bunch of powder because he does not want slave revolts to take place in Southern uh, southern states. The troops that responded to Harper's Ferry were, a, a, I believe, a company of U.S. Marines and Virginia militia. So the state militias of these other slave states, he wanted to make sure uh, they were, were well-armed in case something like this happens. I assure you, having read about uh, uh, John Floyd, and even though my ancestors served under him for a time in Western Virginia, he was not prescient enough to know that two years from now, there's going to be secession and a big war, and we better have all that stuff down south. But mm-hmm. that's what the Northern press thought yeah, and, and, and brought out, and a lot of period discussion of he is a, a traitor. He committed treason when he was Secretary of War. Um, not the case uh, at all. So he says, okay, um, these officers knew that at 6.30, the morning of the 16th of February, two steamboats were coming from Clarksville, and they knew on board were 400 reinforcements. So Floyd says, well, would you mind if I took out my Virginia troops? And Buckner says, because Buckner said, look, I'm going to stay behind. I'll suffer the fate of the garrison. He, he's a man of honor. 
Uh, and he says, if you do it before Grant and I reach terms, go ahead. But if we reach terms before then, you're stuck with the rest of us. So Floyd says, all right, then I'll take my leave, and he will go and uh, talk to his brigade commanders, uh, and, uh, McCausland and um, uh, Wharton, and, and say, get ready, we're going out. Uh, and, and by the way, what, so he has four Virginia regiments there and the 20th Mississippi. These are the only Confederate troops, the whole garrison, that have had combat experience because of the fighting in Western Virginia, Carnifex Ferry, Gauley Bridge, um, things of that nature. Um, uh, some of Buckner's people have had uh, some um, a marching and, and moving experience in, in Kentucky, a little bit of skirmishing. But uh, Floyd is a combat veteran, and and but not particularly a good soldier. He wins the one battle in in Virginia at Carnifex Ferry and or Cross Lanes, Cross Lanes, excuse me, and 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 that's it. Um, so he's going to take his Virginia boys out. So then Pillow says, well, you know, if that's going to happen, would you mind if I left with my staff? And again, Buckner says, if you do it before terms, not a problem. So he will go and meet with his staff and make his plans to escape. Buckner turns to a staff officer and says, bring me paper. I need to send a note to General Grant. And he will write out his terms or yeah. seeking terms. What are your terms, the fortunes of war? Grant and Buckner are pals. The, U the U.S. Army prior to the Civil War was 16,500 officers and men. My neighbors four miles away of the 101st Airborne Division are about 14,000 officers and, and personnel. So the U.S. Army in 1861 was not big, so a lot of these officers knew each other. Uh, Buckner had helped Grant out when Grant was in New York. They were both in New York together. Uh, uh, Grant had some financial troubles, and Buckner loaned him money to get home. So they were were were, were friends. So um, the the uh, Grant is at the Widow Crisp House, which was his headquarters, which is off the park today. But there's a marker about where it was. We think it was further back towards the creek, but it's it's a big marker there. A little two a two room log cabin lean to. He he knocks on the door and tells Mrs. Crisp. Uh, we'd like to use this as headquarters. You do not have to leave your bedroom. We'll all sleep on the floor, uh, and we'll you know make sure you're you're covered and warm and fed and everything else. So here they are at Mrs. Crisp's house, and Grant's in there, Charles Ferguson Smith's in there, McClernand. Knock on the door. Orderly steps in. General Grant, I have a communication from General Buckner, commanding the Confederate garrison. So he. Grant says, bring it here. He walks over to Grant, salutes, hands it to Grant, and Grant starts to read it. Courier leaves the room. Smith is leaning over on the fireplace and says, "What? what's the communication from Buckner? And he, Grant says he's asking for terms. And Smith says, gruffly, no terms for the damn rebels. Again, Mr. Gruff, old army guy. Uh, hard scrabble soldier if there ever was one. And Grant will then write a communication to Buckner. He won't say no terms for the, for the damn rebels, but he will basically say, you know, these sort of the fortunes of war uh, ha have changed and I'm in, in a better position than you are. And unless you agree to unconditional surrender, I propose to move immediately upon your works. Knowing fully that, that, uh, what has left a couple beat-up ironclads on the river. 
Um, and he's getting reinforcements. And if I have to assault the fort and lose some more guys, I'll do it. But I'm going to win. And he'll probably do, use Smith to be the spearhead to do that. Um, so you, so there, there's your term. So Courier comes back to, uh, to Buckner in the nice house you see there, the Dover Hotel, which was his headquarters. His office was downstairs. Um, and uh, reads the terms, and he's quite chagrined, but he's between a rock and a hard place. And he's, well, okay, if that's what it is, that's what it is. So he sends a note back through a courier that says, your terms are agreed to. And once the word gets out, all along the Confederate line, up come the white flags. Union soldiers see that. Cheering breaks out, gets to the gunboats on the river, Naval officer gets into a skiff after putting on his, his dress uniform, rows to the Dover, uh, the uh, landing here. Uh, sentry's out front and says, where's the commanding officer, sir? He's down in his downstairs in his office. He goes in and he goes downstairs to accept the surrender of Fort Donaldson's garrison on behalf of the United States Navy, as they had done at Fort Henry. And when he walks into where Butner's eating breakfast, he enters the room and sees Simon Bolivar Buckner having food with his good friend, pre-war na uh, neighbor from Indiana, uh, Brigadier General Lewis Wallace. They were pals from the militia days. Buckner and the Kentucky State Guard, Lee Wallace, Mexican War, Indiana Militia, uh, Adjutant General of the State of Indiana. So these guys all knew each other. They did drills back and forth as militias would do. Uh, pre-Civil War, so uh, the naval officer turns on his heels and goes back to his gunboat. Uh, and then Grant will show up with his staff. The, the niceties will play out. Uh, Buckner's not that pleased, but, you know, Grant's trying to be cordial and not shove this down his throat. Very magnanimous, as he will be four years later, a place called Appomattox Courthouse. Um, so do you need food? My, my uh, commissary's at your disposal. We'll get your rations if you need rations. What do you need? We will supply it. He says to Buckner, can you provost your garrison? That's military police. Can you, you know, make sure nobody deserts? Can you make sure my boys don't start stealing from your boys? Um, that kind of stuff. And Buckner says, yes, we will do that. And then he says to Buckner, I know you're away from your people and you might need some funds. My purse is at your disposal. Buckner thanks him and, and declines the offer. Now, I don't know if Grant ever paid Buckner back for that loan from New York, but my thing would have been, you know, a few years ago, I loaned you some money. Did you ever pay me back for that? Mm. And Buckner might have gone, no, <laughs> or Grant might have gone, yeah. no, I don't think I did. You're right. I screwed up. Oh, uh, but but I, what's that? Great story, yeah. Yeah, it's a fantastic, you know, one-on-one -on -one, Kind of thing, you know, enemies that could could meet across a yeah. table and and try to and, make something happen. And of course, happen. this is this is where Grant's nickname is born, isn't it, U.S. Grant? And of course, yep. also you also get a lot of people sending him cigars after this victory, don't you? So his smoking habit starts from there. Well, where does that start? He's a pipe smoker, and when he meets Flag Officer Foot, Foot's a cigar smoker. Ah. Uh, uh, so he comes back on the battlefield. Yeah. And everybody sees him when he's trying to reorganize his troops out there with yeah. Lou Wallace and everybody. He's smoking a cigar. And then he's smoking a cigar here. And then when the newspaper reporters say, General Grant with his cigar, this, you know, that, the newspaper said it. And then here come the boxes of cigars to the point that he smokes 20 a day. And it kills him with throat cancer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Where he finishes his memoirs. 
Okay, um, so that's that. That concludes uh, the the battle side of things. But what I want to talk to you quickly about now, Greg, <clears throat> mind is the um, the battlefields themselves nowadays. Um, so just tell us a little bit about both, and if people wanted to visit the sites and and how they could go about that. Okay, this marker here, um, I think, is is where the old Telegraph Road goes into the outer works. The, the outer works, most of the outer works, probably. Three quarters um, are, are still there if you know where to go. Um, if you come to the Fort Donaldson National Battlefield Visitor Center, you get the park brochure. They will tell you how to get there. And and uh, uh, you go down this road, which is a dirt and gravel road that, that makes a right turn that leads to uh, Boswell Landing, which is a campground and boat landing on Boswell Creek, which was there during the battle. <clears throat> and if you go straight, You'll be on this high ground, and if they were to cut down all the trees, as the Confederates would have done in 1862 for field of fire, uh, you would see the outer works. When the winter time, like we have now, you can see them very easily, and you can, we, it, it's at the top of the ridge line there, and then the road starts to go down towards the, the river valley and where Fort Henry would have been. Um, you can go into the woods in the summertime. You have to be careful of things like chiggers and ticks and copperhead snakes. Um but in the wintertime where they're all uh, sleeping, uh, I go stomping in the woods quite a bit, and your line of sight is, is better. Uh, I wish this is not park service. This is owned by the U.S. Forestry Service uh, and, and uh, who owns land between the lakes, as they call it. And I wish I've talked to them about can you cut down some trees uh, where the earthworks are so at least, and, and make a pull-off where people can see it. And then you can go down and park your car, and then you can walk all the way to the river uh, and there's two ways to get that. If you go down the road towards Boswell Landing, they have made a kiosk there with maps, and you can walk on a path down that way through the Outer Works and then down to the river. Um, in the summertime, do watch out for venomous snakes. I know of one tour the day before I did one there for the Battlefield Trust uh, in 2014. That tour had to move a water moccasin off the trail. Um, so that that's those are our friends in the summertime. Uh, but but there are paths to to go down and get to the river. And when you the if you take the path through the the where the sign is on your screen, that will take you to a spot where you can see Fort Hyman really well, better than the Boswell Landing path because of the way the trees run and the turn in the river uh, and things like that. And the Fort Henry navigation marker was allegedly in, well, it was in the river until a year or two ago and a barge slammed into it, took it out, and they've yet to put it back. Mm -hmm. um, it's marked on the on the river map that I've got, and it supposedly was on the northern wall of where Fort Henry is, about 15, 18 feet down. <clears throat> and that got flooded during the Tennessee Valley Authority uh, uh, area where they were uh, flooding the rivers after moving hundreds and thousands of people off their homes and cemeteries and so they could create the reservoirs and the wider rivers that are there today uh, in the uh, uh, President Roosevelt or Franklin Roosevelt administration. Um, so that's why Fort Henry is permanently uh, underwater, even though it was partly underwater during the Civil War. So there is stuff to see there if you know where to go. And then when you come back to the main road, when you leave the dirt road by this marker, you turn left and there's a small cemetery a little north of there where the handful of guys that were killed at Fort Henry in the, with the gunboat fight are buried. And then the road makes a turn to the right and more or less becomes the telegraph road. 
And you can stay on that and see the terrain that the Federals marched through that the Confederates totally gave up uh, because Pillow was an idiot. And, and you get to what we call the trace. And the trace uh, runs up into land between the lakes. There's an iron furnace up there and buffalo herds and some great historic and nature stuff. And then you turn right and you go down to the road that, and you can turn left on this road uh, that takes you to where WHL Wallace's guys initially cut the Eddyville Road. The Eddyville Road north of of, of the Hickman Creek is still there, uh, and you could drive it for a pretty decent uh, a pretty decent distance. But it's it's called uh, under another name. Um, and then you double back to the road, and that takes you down to Highway 79, which is the main road in Dover, and you turn left, and that takes you right to the park. So uh, uh, the Park Service will tell you how to get to these places. Uh, the park brochure map, uh, which is under my thing here, here it is, um, has, uh, let me be sure it's got the, uh, the big, yes, it has the big campaign uh, a marker on there, and then they can tell you, you know, or map on there, yeah. and they can tell you again, you know, how to how to get. It's not that hard. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll leave this, I'll leave a, a link in the description below uh, for people that want to visit um, Fort Donaldson uh, National Battlefield, um, so they can find all that information on their website. I believe, yes. Yeah, that that'll be good. And if you want to stick my email on a link, I'll be yeah, able to send them. Do that, yeah, because like you said, you lead tours as well, don't you, Greg? So yeah, yeah, glad to do it. Yeah. And and um, you know, for if you do a full day Henry Donaldson tour, it's a full day because yeah. I don't want to leave everything out. And one ties in. Yeah, of course. Now, yeah. You know, some people don't have enough time. So they just want to do Fort Donaldson. I get it. The Army sometimes doesn't have enough time, and they they we do deep dives with the Army. This regiment formed this way, that kind of stuff, and that takes time. Uh, so I do far more Donaldson stuff than I do Fort Henry stuff, but Fort Henry's a lot of fun. The problem with Fort Hyman, which is part of Donaldson's Battlefield 2 National Park Service, is you have to go across the Tennessee River. You can see where Fort Donaldson would have been, uh, where that Anderson laid out, because that's right above the water. <clears throat> and then you turn and you drive. It's about 40-minute drive, and you go into the backwoods of Kentucky to get to Fort Hyman. Fort Hyman's fantastic. Yeah. So if you've got the time, and the park will tell you how to get to Fort Hyman as well. Real easy. Oh, cool. Okay. Well, Greg, I thank you very much for explaining the battles of Fort Henry and Donaldson, and thank you very much. Cheers. Well, let me give you one quick thing to, to leave it here. There's ramifications of the campaign. That ramification is massive, and I will scan the map for you uh, and send it to you so you can post it. The Confederate defense line that ran from Columbus, Kentucky on the west to Cumberland Gap on the east totally collapsed all the way down to Alabama and Mississippi. Totally collapsed. The Confederates are falling back. Clark, Fort Donaldson surrenders on February 16th. My town of Clarksville, February 19th. Nashville, February 25th. First Confederate state capital to fall. The Tennesseans are in an uproar uh, over what the heck just happened. Last state in the Confederacy, we just lost the state capital. The ramifications for that is that dictates Confederate military strategy in the West for the entire rest of the war to try to recapture Tennessee and the city of Nashville. That's what happens because of Fort Henry and Fort Donaldson. And by the way, would have happened if Grant had gone up the Tennessee River yes. all the way to Alabama. Same thing would have happened. Well, thank, no you for 
Thank you for joining me. Thank you very much. Hey, great to have you. Appreciate it. Thanks.